This is Hunter Keegan, back with the 29th episode of Down Home Fear. Lately, I've been in a bit of a predicament. As DHF continues to grow, new listeners like to go through our older episodes from Season 1 and Season 2 for the full, grisly, true crime experience. I enjoy listening back through some of these episodes myself, partially because I like to troubleshoot them and find ways to keep the show improving as we move forward into the bleak future, but also because, frankly, I forget about some of the stories we've covered, and it's interesting to listen to a younger version of myself explain them. It's sort of like augmented reality or time travel. One of the things I noticed is that Well, a couple of the early episodes are pretty rough from a production standpoint. This is something I've touched on a couple of times before in this season. For weeks now, I've been trying to decide what to do with those rough episodes. I want to keep them up so people have content to listen to, but I also don't want people who are starting with the early episodes to be like, uh, what is this next 30 hours of the podcast going to sound like? I was trawling through my computer today trying to find the original scripts that I wrote for episode 5, The Murder of Bob McClancy, and episode 6, Susan Smith slash Darley Routier. And to my dismay, I realized that I had deleted the files years ago as I was trying to clean up my hard drive. Then I remembered that because I'm neurotic as fuck, I actually had the original hard copies of the scripts in a storage box in my bedroom closet, and much to my relief, I discovered that I did indeed have the scripts, and that not only could the stories still be shared with our listeners, but that I could record them up to my current standards. Whether or not you think these current standards are satisfactory is another story, but anyway, today, let's take a trip down memory lane and revisit three of the most infamous stories from season one of Down Home Fear. Susan Smith was a woman who drowned her own children. Bob McClancy was a man who was poisoned by his own wife. Darley Routier was a woman who stabbed her own children to death. So let's get into all of that. I recently made a poll on the DHF Facebook group asking for what types of stories you all wanted to hear, and brutal murder was one of the top choices. So here's some brutal murder for you, now in high fidelity. Union, South Carolina a small town in the northwestern area of the state, bland and uneventful, landlocked hundreds of miles away from the beachfront centers of tourism that South Carolina is most famously known for. It has a population of 8,000. The year was 1994, and many of the people who lived in Union at the time worked at Conzo, a large textile factory that was the cornerstone of their local economy. Susan Smith was a 23-year-old woman who was working as a secretary at Conzo. In high school, she had been an honor roll student and voted friendliest person in her graduating class. She had recently separated from her husband, and she had been dating a man named Tom Findlay, who happened to also work at the factory. Tom and Susan had been dating for a few months, and things were beginning to get rocky. Susan had two young children, Michael, who was three years old, and Alexander, who was 16 months old. Her boyfriend, Tom, had recently expressed reservations about continuing his relationship with Susan, 
And sometime in late October of 1994, Tom finally told Susan that it was time for them to break up. He explained that he genuinely cared for her and that he thought her children were great kids, but that he just didn't feel comfortable starting a serious relationship with a woman who had young children from a previous marriage. At 3.30 p.m. on October 25, 1994, Susan wrapped up her shift at the textile factory and picked up her two children from daycare. She then went to a local bar trying to decide what her next move was. She loved Tom and desperately wanted the relationship to work. After leaving the bar, she drove back to the Conzo textile factory and tried to speak with Tom, but Tom wasn't interested. He reiterated that he cared for her, but he just wasn't looking for a serious relationship at the time. Distraught, Susan drove home with her two sons and made them dinner. After the toddlers had eaten, Susan decided to take them for a drive through the quiet countryside as she tried to clear her mind. Neither of her children returned from this trip. That evening, Susan placed a call to 911. She hysterically explained to the operator that she had been stopped at a red light on a remote road when an African-American man ran up to her vehicle brandishing a gun and demanded that she get out of the car. She said the man drove off with her two children strapped to their car seats in the back of her brown 1990 Mazda Protégé and that she had no idea where the children could have been taken. She was making the call from a house that was nearby the scene of the alleged carjacking. Cops arrived at Susan's location very quickly. They contacted her husband, who she was separated from. His name was David. And when David arrived at the scene, he found his soon-to-be ex-wife weeping uncontrollably and barely able to speak to the police. David later said that as the horrific story was relayed to him by Susan and the police officers on scene, he 100% believed that the carjacking had taken place. In fact, everyone seemed to believe Susan's story. A nationwide search effort commenced in search of the stolen Mazda and the two children. The search continued for days, and as it intensified, questions began to arise. People began noticing that Susan's description of the carjacker was quite generic. She said that he was an African-American man who was about six feet tall, had medium build, and dark hair and dark eyes. Investigators generated a composite sketch based off of her description, but when they realized how generic the man's appearance looked, they decided not to distribute the sketch because they were worried that it would confuse the public. Just two days after the alleged kidnapping, Susan appeared on national television, pleading for the safe return of her children. But cops had already begun to suspect that something was wrong with her account of the incident. They conducted a polygraph test, which she failed, and when directly asked if she had been involved with the children's disappearance, she became belligerent and refused to continue speaking with the officers. A few days passed and Susan appeared on television again, asking that the man return her children safely. Throughout all of this, police were questioning Susan daily, and with each round of questioning, inconsistencies in her story became more and more apparent. For example, she said that she had gone to visit one of her friends who lived in the countryside around Union, and that she had made a purchase at a local Walmart along the way. However, neither her friend nor the cashier at the Walmart had seen her on the night of October 25th. 
Making matters even more suspicious, the stoplight at the intersection where she claimed the carjacking had taken place was designed in such a way that the light would only turn red if there were other vehicles also present at the intersection. So her claim that a lone man had approached out of nowhere and forced her out of the car while she was stopped at the red light didn't add up. Susan's television appearances weren't helping her case either. She even made a couple of slips. For example, she periodically referred to her children in the past tense, saying, I loved them, I really did, which made viewers wonder, how could she know that the children may already be dead? On her third and final nationally televised appearance, she emphasized that she had nothing to do with the disappearance of her children and that she was hurt by accusations that she had brought her own kids into harm's way. But while being questioned by police on November 3rd, 1994, Susan finally admitted to police that she knew the location of her children, Alexander and Michael. They were at the bottom of a lake, just 12 miles north of Union. She had driven the car to the edge of a boat ramp and left it in neutral before taking off the parking brake and allowing the car to slowly roll down the ramp and sink 18 feet down into the cold waters. She said that she had intended to commit suicide, taking the children with her, but that she had jumped out of the vehicle at the last second. When recovery, <laughs> when recovery divers found the vehicle, they could see the children's waterlogged, rotting hands pressed against the car windows. The vehicle had been there for 10 days. South Carolina initially pursued the death penalty against Susan. Susan was appointed a public defender, but her family also hired an attorney named David Brock. Because of the intense national attention that the story had already escalated to, the judge presiding over the case instituted a gag order on everyone involved in the case and banned cameras from the courtroom. The trial began on July 17, 1995 and lasted just 17 days. Susan never took the stand because a psychiatrist had deemed her too mentally unstable to testify on her own behalf. The psychiatrist also diagnosed her with dependent personality disorder and major depression. While Susan's defense team painted her as a deeply troubled but non-violent young mother, the prosecution maintained that she had committed first-degree murder, plotting to kill the children in hopes of being able to reunite with her boyfriend, Tom. During the course of the trial, it was revealed that Susan had attempted suicide twice, once when she was 12 years old and then another attempt just before she graduated high school. Her family also had a long history of alcoholism and depression. Her stepfather even admitted to sexually abusing her beginning when she was 15 years old. When it came time for the jury to reach a verdict, they debated for only two and a half hours. They found her guilty on two counts of murder. Before Susan was sentenced, the prosecution showed a video reenactment of the drowning from the first-person perspective of the children sitting in their car seats. They had placed a video camera in the back of a small sedan, and they allowed it to roll into a lake to show the jury just what the children would have seen in their last moments. When I watched this video myself when I was researching this story, I noticed how long it took the vehicle to actually sink. It floated for several minutes, drifting further and further into the middle of the lake before slowly filling with water and dropping below the surface. I cannot imagine how horrified and confused those young children must have been as their mother abandoned them and allowed them to slowly drown in a locked vehicle that they had no chance of escaping from. Ultimately, Susan wasn't sentenced to death, 
but she was sentenced to life in prison with possibility of parole after 30 years. This would mean that she could walk free beginning on November 4, 2024. She currently resides in Leith Correctional Institution in Greenwood, South Carolina. Susan's ex-husband, David, the father of her children, strongly wanted her to be sentenced to death. After she was sentenced, he gave a brief interview on the steps of the courthouse, expressing his dismay that, in his opinion, justice had not been delivered. Stories like this are part of the reason why I take long hiatuses between recording seasons of DHF. They're selfish, abhorrent, unconscionable acts of cruelty that have no resolution and leave irreparable tears in the fabric of society. Susan herself even said at one point that as she watched the car roll down the boat ramp, she tried to get back into the vehicle to stop it, but that she wasn't able to. She was lucid enough to realize that what she was doing was wrong. I don't buy that she could not understand the moral implications of drowning her own children and watching as her car slowly sank beneath the still waters of the lake on that dreary, cold autumn night. It deeply angers me that someone like Susan Smith could get paroled and be walking next to me on the street a couple of years from now, and I wouldn't even realize it. So let's get into another story about trusted family members betraying people who need them most. In the interests of accuracy, before we go any further, I just want to mention that in the following segment, I refer to a woman as Martha. Her actual first name is Martha Ann, but that name is really awkward to read out loud every other sentence, so I shortened it to Martha so you don't all have to hear me stumbling over my words more than I already do. This next segment was originally featured in episode 5 of Down Home Fear. I learned of it through an episode of Dateline one night while I was staying at my late grandfather's cabin in the mountains of West Virginia. A lot of the stories that we cover in this show paint people as monsters, and we expect them to be lurking out in the world waiting to get us. But what particularly disturbs me is when people's own friends or family harm them for some type of personal gain or other so-called benefit. Bob McClancy was a Marine Corps veteran who had received a Purple Heart after serving in Vietnam. He went on to start a family in Brandonton, Florida, which is located on the Gulf Coast just south of Tampa. Everyone who knew him remembers him as a really friendly and generous guy. He loved his family, and he was very involved with helping his sister raise his nieces. He was an animal lover, and he enjoyed spending time outdoors. After his career in the military, he entered the civilian sector as a sheriff's deputy in Brandonton. 
During this time, he was involved in a dangerous confrontation with members of a local gang. They actually disarmed him and tried to shoot him with his own weapon, but luckily, Bob was able to escape safely. Although Bob was well-liked and lived a generally happy life, like anyone else, he had his share of personal issues. Despite that he rarely spoke about it, people who knew him well were aware that he suffered from PTSD after his time serving in Vietnam. In the early 1990s, Bob was in the process of divorcing his wife, and around the same time, the sheriff's station that he worked at hired a new secretary named Martha Ann. Martha and Bob quickly became close with each other. Martha had two children, one of whom was adopted. And as it turned out, Martha was also going through a divorce. So the two of them ended up hitting it off, and they started a serious relationship soon after meeting. In 1995, Bob and Martha got married. Martha's adopted son, named Sean, became very close with Bob. In one interview, Sean told reporters that Bob taught him, quote, how to be a real person. I really love hearing this sort of thing. It's so great to hear when adopted children are able to find a supportive person in their lives who can help mentor and guide them in ways that perhaps their birth parents weren't able to. It also really speaks volumes about Bob and his open-mindedness and kindness toward others, even if they weren't his own biological children. By the late 90s, Bob had decided that it was time for him to retire. He and Martha bought a cozy cabin in a secluded area of Tennessee, up in the Smoky Mountains, a region of the Appalachian Mountain Range named for its characteristic misty haze that hangs above the rolling peaks and valleys during certain times of the year. The town was called Coker Creek, and the county it was located in had a population of just about 850. By then, Sean was married and had his own family, but he and Bob remained close. Bob would often babysit for Sean's children. Meanwhile, Martha found a job working as an accountant. Like Bob, Martha was also known as a real people person, and she had many friends who she met after they moved to Coker Creek. One person described her as the quintessential Southern lady. Between his experiences in Vietnam and his experiences as a sheriff's deputy, Bob's PTSD had been an enduring issue for him throughout his adult life. He began taking antidepressants to help cope with his mental health troubles. In January of 2006, Bob started an intensive PTSD therapy program in Nashville. The program was organized by the Veterans Administration, also known as the VA. He had decided that his goal for 2006 was to finally put his issues with PTSD to rest. And during his time in the treatment program, he met a man named Chuck Kazmarzik. Chuck was a combat veteran as well, and he told Bob that he had been decorated for his valor in combat. Starting in February 2006, Chuck and Bob continued to hang out with each other, even though the treatment program they were in had concluded. Now, if you're like me, you may be wondering, doesn't one month sound kind of short for a comprehensive PTSD treatment program? And it is short, and that's because the program was ended early because Chuck refused to follow the guidelines stipulated by the counselors who were overseeing treatment for the veterans. Chuck would leave the treatment center for days without telling anyone. The VA organizers told Chuck that if he continued to do this, they would have to suspend him from the program. And in a sign of solidarity with his new friend, Bob left the program as well. Bob returned to Coker Creek and found that Martha had changed her look. She cut her hair short, ostensibly trying a new style to keep things fresh. 
Throughout early 2006, Martha and Chuck, Bob's two closest friends, began quietly telling friends and family that Bob had begun to abuse his antidepressant medications. They said he'd even been hospitalized multiple times after overdosing on the meds. On May 15, 2006, Chuck stopped by Bob and Martha's cabin in Coker Creek. He found Bob had passed away. He was sitting lifelessly in a recliner, with a pistol in one hand and an empty bottle of pills in the other. White foam had formed around his mouth, although there was no gunshot wound. Bob had left a note in his kitchen that stated DNR, meaning do not resuscitate. Naturally, Bob's family and friends were absolutely devastated by the apparent suicide. That evening, a woman named Debbie, who was one of Martha's close friends from church, arrived at the home to comfort Martha after the horrific and unexpected death of her husband. Although Martha and Debbie were very close friends, Debbie, perhaps because she knew Martha so well, noticed that something seemed off about the situation. Mainly, she was surprised to see that Chuck was still at the property after Bob's body had been taken to the morgue. Sure, Chuck and Bob were good friends, but they'd only known each other for a few months. It seemed inappropriate that Chuck would be continuing to stay at the home with Bob's grieving widow. Debbie also saw Chuck getting into a squad car with police, apparently being questioned by the officers, which she thought was unusual as well. Travis Jones was one of the detectives who had arrived at the scene earlier that day. Detective Jones was immediately suspicious of Chuck as well, mainly because Chuck had seemed unusually calm during his initial call to 911, and also because he had reportedly told the 911 operator that he did not want to perform CPR on Bob because he had seen the DNR note left in the kitchen. Meanwhile, Bob's sister Kathy told investigators that she didn't believe Bob had killed himself. She also told investigators that despite Martha and Chuck's stories about Bob allegedly abusing his antidepressants, Bob was never the type of person who would abuse any type of medication. It just wasn't in his nature. I'd like to jump in with a couple of my own thoughts at this point. 1. Antidepressant medications are not really the type of thing that people commonly abuse. I can speak to this from personal experience. Antidepressants don't have much, if any, recreational value. They're not like Xanax, Percocet, Ritalin, or some of the other medications you may have heard that people commonly use to get high with. And two, just to play a devil's advocate, I don't think sounding calm while on the phone with a 911 operator necessarily indicates that someone is guilty. I've unfortunately had to make a number of 911 calls throughout my life, and whenever I'm on the phone, or really when I'm in any type of stressful emergency situation, I remain extremely concentrated and make a concerted effort to speak in a clear and level-headed manner so that whoever's on the other end of the line can understand what I'm saying. Chuck had said he was a combat veteran, so that could mean he was probably accustomed to being in high-pressure situations and that he may not sound verbally agitated when making difficult calls like the one he made on the evening of May 15th, 2006. Regardless of how even-keeled Chuck may have been, there was no disputing that he seemed to be lingering around the property long after Bob's body had been taken by investigators, and after Debbie had arrived to comfort Martha. Over the ensuing weeks, as Detective Jones began to delve deeper into the untimely death of Bob McClancy, Kathy, again who is Bob's sister, I know that we have a bunch of different names floating around in the story at this point, Kathy confided that she had never liked Chuck. 
Although Bob and Chuck were close friends, Kathy never felt comfortable when Chuck was present. She said that he had a kind of coldness about him, that she often caught a strange look in his eyes that made her suspicious of him. In short, Chuck made her feel uncomfortable. Sean, Bob's stepson, told Detective Jones that he shared Kathy's suspicions as well. Chuck was questioned extensively by police, but because all the evidence against him was circumstantial and speculative at best, they weren't able to charge him or continue prying for more information. So people moved on with their lives. Chuck and Martha became very close with each other, which didn't really seem odd to most people. Martha had told many of her friends over the years that she had developed significant back problems, so it made sense that Chuck would routinely come over to the property to help Martha around the house. You may recall earlier that we said Bob loved animals, so maybe it shouldn't come as too much of a surprise that he actually had put together a small animal rescue organization that he operated out of his home. One of the first things Martha did after Bob died was get rid of the animal shelter. Later in 2006, Chuck joined Martha, Debbie, and Debbie's husband on a cruise. Debbie wasn't a fool, and at this point it became absolutely clear to her that Chuck and Martha had become romantically involved. This didn't necessarily upset Debbie, it's not unusual for people to become close with one another after they share a difficult experience. But what did disturb Debbie was Chuck's behavior during the cruise. For example, when they were ordering food at a restaurant, Chuck would speak for Martha and order on her behalf. They also wore matching outfits, which Debbie found very bizarre, and so do I. A couple of months after the cruise, Martha told Debbie that she and Chuck were getting married, and she asked Debbie to be the maid of honor at her wedding. Debbie was flattered by this request, and for a while this helped reduce her skepticism towards Chuck. But it gets weirder. In early 2007, Martha told her friends that she had been offered a new job as a secretary at the FBI. It was a big step up from the small accounting job that she had been working in Tennessee. And she told her friends that she would even be flying with the FBI on secret missions and government aircraft. After starting this new job, she apparently was transferred to another position, this time with the State Department, where she claimed to have personal limos at her disposal. She even flew with Vice President Dick Cheney to undisclosed overseas locations. Martha became very difficult to get in touch with in those days and her friends often had no knowledge of where she was or what she was up to. And while all of this was going on, Chuck seemed to have a tendency to discover small brush fires around eastern Tennessee and call 911 to report them. He'd stay at the location of the fires and help the first responders from the fire department to put out the flames. One thing that her friends did still know about Martha was that she had become closely involved with the Department of Veterans Affairs, again, the VA. She and Chuck frequently traveled the country and volunteered at VA events, military funerals, and other high-profile events. Chuck, the self-proclaimed combat veteran, would hand out flags to the widows of deceased soldiers at military funerals. He sported a suit jacket plastered with eye-catching medals representing the sacrifices that he had made throughout his own time serving in the Air Force. The Spectre Association is a group of Air Force veterans that Chuck belonged to, and during some of the VA functions that he and Martha attended, Chuck began running into his actual war buddies, who were also in the Spectre Association. The men who Chuck served with had conflicting accounts of him, 
but none that suggested that he was a particularly valiant soldier. They seemed to recall him either as being pretty unremarkable or kind of sketchy. During one reunion, some of his old comrades asked Chuck what he'd been up to over the years since they'd last seen him. Chuck claimed that he had remained in the Air Force and eventually retired at the rank of Chief. They asked him where he'd gotten all his medals from, and he gave a cagey explanation that the VA had checked his classified records, and that it turned out he'd had all sorts of medals and commendations that he didn't even know that he had qualified for. Martha and Chuck fancied themselves a bit of a power couple at this point, and eventually Martha even began working for the Spectre Association along with her new husband. By the way, the Spectre Association is not a made-up thing. It's not clandestine or Illuminati type of stuff. Spectre refers to the AC-130 aircraft that the United States military uses to provide combat support to troops with. Anyhow, Martha and Chuck began buying a lot of frivolous things, including luxury RVs, limited edition Corvettes, and other very expensive purchases. Bob's sister Kathy continued expressing her reservations about Martha and Chuck, and Martha began to publicly slander her because Kathy continued to point out inconsistencies with Martha and Chuck's various claims about their careers. Kathy even suggested that Martha may have been mentally ill. In 2008, Chuck was giving a guest lecture at a college. He was regaling students with his tales from Vietnam and other events during the Cold War. He said that he had been present at the fall of Saigon. He even said that he had been directly involved with the handling of the Iran hostage crisis and other extremely high-profile global conflicts. A local reporter who was sitting in the audience took note of Chuck's various claims and printed his stories in the local newspaper. This time, now that everything was in writing and his dubious claims could be more closely examined, other members of the veteran community caught wind of Chuck and Martha. They were outraged by his braggadocious statements, and many veterans began publicly expressing skepticism that Chuck was the hardened veteran that he claimed to be. During his final reunion with the Spectre Association, Chuck got into a heated argument with other Air Force vets, who began calling him out on the inconsistencies in his claims about his military career. Afterwards, Chuck claimed that he had encountered an unspecified emergency in his life and would no longer be able to attend Spectre Association reunions. Regardless, the stories had become so outlandish that representatives from the Air Force contacted the VA to see if Chuck's claims could be substantiated. Numerous people who served with Chuck were interviewed, and all of them said that Chuck's claims were simply false. He had never even been in direct combat situations at any point during his service. Subsequently, it was revealed that Chuck had falsified a number of records in order to appear as if his service had extended far beyond what it actually entailed. He had been doctoring old mission records, adding his name to them, and putting fake seals and stamps on the records and submitting them to the Air Force in order to get them entered in his own military record. The VA also realized that now even Martha was lying about military service. Keep in mind, Martha had never served in any branch of the armed forces, but she still claimed that she had been at the Pentagon during 9-11. As the story continued to unravel, it became clear that Martha's stories about working for the FBI and the State Department were false as well. What possible motive could someone have to do something like this? 
Why would anyone want to lie about military service and attend funerals for men and women who had died in combat, let alone hold high-profile positions with various organizations that were specifically for combat veterans? And the short answer is money. Martha and Chuck were scamming the government, stealing taxpayer money specifically set aside for veterans and people with disabilities to support their extravagant lifestyle. Between various exaggerations and flat-out lies about their military careers and personal health problems and also exploiting Bob's death benefits that he had earned as part of his actual career in the military, they were collecting approximately $10,000 each month. This was a blatant case of fraud, and this time, the real FBI began conducting surveillance on the couple. Hours of video were recorded showing Martha and Chuck performing physical labor around the house that Bob had purchased in Coker Creek, despite that they both claimed to have physical disabilities that prevented them from performing strenuous labor. In spring of 2008, the FBI sprung a trap on the couple. A representative from the VA scheduled an appointment for Martha and Chuck at a local VA hospital. Once the two entered the premises, they were promptly taken into custody. Martha and Chuck were convicted of a number of crimes, including fraud and stolen valor. Chuck was sentenced to 40 months in prison, and Martha received 20 months in prison, related to the fraud charges. Shortly before going to prison, Martha gave her son, Sean, and his wife approximately 30,000 documents for safekeeping. Naturally, Sean, who had been very close with Bob, began diving into the stacks of records to see if there was any information that he could uncover about his stepfather's untimely demise. On a computer that Martha had given to him, Sean found photographs of Bob's suicide. In the photos, he noticed continuity errors in the placement of objects around the living room where Bob's body had been found, suggesting that the suicide had been staged. Sean immediately contacted an investigator from the VA who had worked on the initial fraud and stolen valor cases against Chuck and Martha. As it turned out, back in 2006, Detective Jones, one of the first men who had arrived at the scene of the staged suicide, had already opened a formal investigation into Chuck. Detective Jones had found the suspicious photos during this previous investigation, but in his brazenness to close the case, not unlike, keep in mind how often this happens, by the way, if you remember what happened with the Casey Anthony situation, this is very similar. These investigators, they get very focused on solving the case, they get tunnel vision, and they don't do things by the books. So this is what happens. He was so brazen to close the case that he had not followed proper procedures, which resulted in the evidence being inadmissible in court. So with the way our legal system in the United States works, all evidence has to be collected in a formal procedural manner. You can't just skip certain aspects of that process. And the reason that that's in place is so that investigators can't just start making things up or they're starts being speculation and conjecture incorporated into the course of collecting evidence for investigations. And so this is normally a safeguard, but in cases like this, and in the case with uh, Casey Anthony, uh, which is the other one that immediately comes to mind for me, um, these things get overlooked, and unfortunately, it can backfire tremendously. 
So although Detective Jones uh, had his heart in the right place, unfortunately, even though he had found this information, there was nothing that could be done with it, which, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I think that's pretty fucking frustrating. It was also revealed that Chuck and Martha had taken measures to remove Bob's daughter. Bob had a uh, biological daughter from his first marriage. So Chuck and Martha had taken measures to actually doctor Bob's will, and they, uh, they changed the language in the will in a way that was inconsistent with the language that Bob had written in the rest of the document, which tipped off police. And actually, one of the things that tipped them off to the language being different is that the language towards his daughter, towards Bob's biological daughter, was like very mean and harsh and it didn't sound like something he normally would have written. Imagine if you're Bob's daughter and your father has just suddenly passed away from an apparent suicide and then after after the funeral and after you know, you're, you're starting to try to move past things, you realize that in the will, your father has ostensibly written that he does not like you and that he does not want you to have any of his inheritance or property or anything like that. Just imagine how fucked up that would be. Now, again, so all this stuff starts finally coming back to the surface. Sean volunteered to work with investigators to stage a phone call with Martha. And during the call, Sean asked her about the photos that he had found. And at first, Martha insisted that they were photos that had been taken by police. But Sean continues pressing her for information, and Martha actually begins to scream at him, and she demands this time that he delete the photos from the computer. After this call, investigators finally had a solid lead to go off of, and they used this information to persuade Chuck to tell them what had really happened between Martha and Bob. In 2015, Martha went on trial again, this time for first-degree murder, attempted murder, and conspiracy to commit murder. Martha continued to firmly deny everything. She insisted that she had no involvement with Bob's death, and her defense team attempted to argue that it had been Chuck who committed the murder, and that Chuck had involved Martha in his crime in yet another one of his long string of deceptions. When Martha was asked about her affiliation with the FBI and these high-profile jobs that she had been working with the State Department and all of these other outrageous claims she had made about how important she was and how expansive that her roles had been at these very high-powered organizations, she did admit that those claims about working with the FBI and working with the State Department had been a hoax. But she and her defense team continued to maintain her innocence when it came to the death of Bob McClancy. Unfortunately for Martha, not just Sean, but Chuck, who had now accepted a plea bargain with prosecutors, ended up testifying against her. This is when several more disturbing details rose to the surface. First of all, Chuck and Martha had been having an affair long before Bob's death. Secondly, during the months leading up to Bob's murder, Martha had been entrusted by doctors to keep full control of the medications that Bob was taking. 
The specific reason for this is not precisely known. I personally speculate that it had to do with Martha and Chuck's claims that Bob had been overdosing on the medications in the months leading up to his death. She had been able to secretly poison his meals with extremely high doses of the medications, which caused him to overdose multiple times. Then Martha would take him to the hospital, claiming that the overdose was due to a suicide attempt. When everything was said and done, prosecutors estimated that Martha and Chuck had stolen over $1 million in federal benefits over the years using false health problems, fabricated military service records, and of course Bob's death to receive payments from the government. Keep in mind, all of that money was funded by taxpayers specifically to assist disabled veterans, the families of veterans, and even civilians who were truly living with severe disabilities. In June 2016, the jury wasn't able to convict Martha of first-degree murder, but they did find her guilty of attempted murder and conspiracy to commit murder. And at the age of 67, she was sentenced to 50 years in prison, effectively a life sentence. And for his contributions during the trial, Chuck took a plea deal and was convicted of conspiracy and sentenced to 25 years in prison. earlier that there are certain stories that I've covered in this show that really get to me, and this is definitely one of them. The utter betrayal of trust and despicably selfish actions against vulnerable people disgusts me. Bob McClancy was a man who had served our country, not just in wartime, but also as a sheriff's deputy, working to protect his community from gang violence, and for his sacrifices, he was left with mental health issues that he was actively working toward overcoming and taking responsible steps to get his life back on track. He had unwittingly fallen in love with a woman who was a complete narcissist and who undermined his health and safety. By a cruel twist of fate, he had struck up a friendship with a man who was equally as conniving and manipulative. While Bob was being continuously drugged to the point of overdose and eventual death, his so-called friend was fornicating with his wife and plotting how to reap financial benefit from his untimely and completely unnecessary demise. All that Martha and Chuck had to show for this cruelty were some fancy RVs, Corvettes, and other material objects that were bestowed upon them by virtue of fraud. It's despicable. I feel deeply for Bob McClancy, his sister Kathy, his stepson Sean, his nieces, and all his other family members who cared for him and had only vague suspicions about what was happening behind the closed doors of the small mountain cabin where Bob had intended to retire and to live out the rest of his days operating a small animal shelter. I hate to be cynical, but stories like this really test my faith in humanity. The things that people do to each other for the most pointless and vapid of reasons is haunting. And it does make me wonder how many other stories are out there like this that we simply never hear about. Martha and Chuck are both textbook narcissists. Both of them wanted some kind of undeserved recognition to set themselves apart from their peers. Both of them will die in prison alone, and with nothing to show for their actions except the murder of an innocent man and the broken hearts of his loving family. 
this last segment is about another piece of human garbage. If anything, maybe this episode is making you feel a little bit better about yourself as a human being. I know it's making me feel a little bit better about myself. Just a little bit of context, uh, this last segment is going to be the unabridged recording that I originally did for episode 6 of Down Home Fear. I didn't want to re-record this one because I think it's actually reflective of when the Down Home Fear format and vision, if you will, began to fall into place. And I started having a more definitive feeling of the tone of the show at that point, and I actually do enjoy listening back to this segment in its original format. This segment is about a woman named Darley Routier, also sometimes called Darley Routier, and it's also about her kids. Darley's on death row in Texas right now for reasons that you'll hear about in just a few moments. The story is equally as infuriating and tragic as the last two. I mentioned on our Facebook page not too long ago that I actually tracked down Darley's prison mailing address at one point when I was researching the story, and I uh, had considered writing to her to get some direct source material, but ultimately, I decided not to. I realized that by validating her, by asking for her thoughts to share with my audience was unnecessary and even unethical, maybe even exploitative. I had no interest in giving her a platform to share her thoughts beyond what is already publicly known. The only reason that I mention this, and allow me to get on a little bit of a soapbox here, but these heavier episodes really make me think about the ethical implications of the stories that we discuss on here. I love to talk about crazy stuff like UFOs and man-eating animals and serial imposters or even abandoned asylums and all sorts of off-color things like that. But when it comes to a human taking another human's life, I try to be respectful of all parties involved, even if I find them abhorrent. Please remember when you listen to a podcast or watch a television show or read a book about true crime, there are genuinely people who were hurt. And that pain extends to their families and friends and communities. There's basically, there's a whole bunch of dumb bullshit going on with this story. There's very clearly information that's missing. People involved with it seem to be lying. And it's a whole kind of clusterfuck (laughs) to go through. Um, So I've tried to pick the most salient and relevant pieces of information so you as a listener can kind of come to your own conclusions about exactly what to believe. But without beating around the bush any further, this story is about a woman named Darlie Routier, She um, was living in Rowlett, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas, in the summer of 1996. She and her husband, Darren, were living in a very nice home in a pretty affluent neighborhood. The median income in Rowlett was actually $65,000 per year at the time, Uh, so it it was a very well-to-do community. Darley was 26 years old at the time, so they were a little bit of a younger couple. They had actually met when they were teenagers, and 
Darren had started his own business and it ended up being very successful. It was a business where he created um, circuit boards for computers and you know they had multiple cars they had a very very beautiful house they had a boat that they had purchased for themselves but on june 6th 1996 things took a turn for the worse Darley was sleeping with her two oldest children, Damon and Devin, downstairs in the living room of their home on this night. And the reason for that is they, um, or I'm sorry, Darren and Darley had just had a new baby. So they had a seven-month-old son who they had named Drake. Also, just as a side note, all of the names in this family start with the letter D, so if I get tripped up, I'll correct myself, but I just wanted to apologize in advance because it might get a little bit confusing. So we have Darley Routier, Darren Routier, and their kids, Devin, Damon, and Drake. Apparently, the newborn baby, Drake, was being really loud and fussy at night, and it was making it difficult for people to sleep. So on this particular night, the father, Darren, was upstairs sleeping with the baby while Darley, Damon, and Devin slept in the living room downstairs so they wouldn't get woken up by the baby all night. So this is what happens. It's 2.30 in the morning on June 6th, 1996, and Darlie wakes up and claims that she heard her son uh, saying, Mommy, Mommy, help. She said that she witnessed a dark figure in in the room, possibly a white male wearing a dark baseball cap, who had stabbed her two oldest children and was in the process of attacking her, slicing her throat, slicing her arms, and then proceeding to run out the uh, back door of the house and disappear into the night. This is uh, Darley's version of events. And so she says that she began screaming, they're dead, oh my god, they're dead, my babies, they're dead. And at this point, Darren, who was sleeping upstairs with the uh, youngest son, the seven-month-old Drake, came downstairs and found just a complete horror show. Blood everywhere. Uh, Devin is laying motionless on the floor and Damon has dragged himself across the room and is virtually lifeless, just barely moving around, barely clinging to life. They both have, the two children, they both have really deep chest wounds uh, that were apparently inflicted with a large knife of some sort. Darren said that he tried to do CPR as Darley dialed 911 and began attempting to explain what had happened. Darren said that as he was doing CPR on Devin, he was blowing into Devin's mouth in an attempt to resuscitate him, 
and at this point saw that blood was gushing up out of his chest wounds as as Darren was breathing in. So at this point, Darren realized that tragically his son Devin was quite dead. So there's there's blood all over this scene. I, I've seen the photographs that the police took once they arrived. Uh, so there's you know bloody footprints, bloody handprints, blood splatter all over this uh, light colored carpet. It's really quite horrifying. And Darley, mind you, also has a really bad gash on her neck and uh, apparently defensive wounds as well. So Darley, there's there's blood pouring down her. Um, her neck and, and her body, and it's just a real um, gruesome, gruesome scene. There's some minor damage to the living room where Darley had been sleeping with Devin and Damon, but there's no major damage. Uh, the worst damage was a wine rack had been broken and a vacuum cleaner had been knocked over. So it, it wasn't like the place had been completely trashed, which is uh, probably one of the first things that the police who responded on the scene noticed as being suspicious. Darley called a 911, and the police responded in less than three minutes. So there was a very, very short window of time in which this supposed intruder could have escaped into the night. When the cops do arrive, they find that the back door had been slashed open, uh, a screen door, and nothing, but nothing had been stolen. And in some accounts that I've read, they said it was actually a back window in the garage that had been slashed and someone had come through the window in the garage and then into the house through the, uh, through the garage door. But in others, they say it was a screen door that exited just directly into the backyard. So when the cops arrive, they find that the back door to the house had been slashed open. It was a screen door, uh, but nothing of value had been stolen, which is odd because there was expensive jewelry that was laying out in the kitchen area of the house. Uh, So you you would assume that an intruder would have stolen this, but it had been left alone, confusingly. And there's a few other issues as well, including one source who noted that the routiers had a one of those uh, security lights in their backyard where it detects motion and then stays on for 15 minutes or so before turning off. But they noticed that uh, the the security light in the backyard was not activated, which could mean that no one was in the backyard at all and no one had jumped through the uh, back door and and ran across the backyard because they would have activated the light and the light still would have been on when the cops arrived uh, because this light was on a 15-minute timer. 
So there's the inconsistencies that we've already talked about and others as well, but at least for the time being, Darley is just taken to the hospital and treated for her injuries and then, you know, allowed to return home with her husband. Now, just days after the murder, something very, very infamous happens. And this is a pretty well-known video if you um, are familiar with the case. But so there a lot of people on internet forums that I have read and as well as, you know, news reporters and things like that have started referring to this as the quote-unquote silly string incident. So just a couple of days after the murder of Devin and Damon, the Rootiers held a mock birthday celebration at Devin's gravesite because he would have been seven years old on that day. He'd been killed just about a week before his seventh birthday. And at this celebration, there's a video of Darley happily spraying silly string all over the gravestone and, you know, smiling and laughing and looking like she's in very high spirits, which, you know, would be confusing if your two oldest children had just been brutally killed in front of you days before. So this incident was the real, ended up ultimately being the real nail in the coffin for Darley. And they argue, Darley and Darren and their supporters argue that there was a two hour service held before this mock birthday, silly string celebration and that it was very traditional and in low key and people were crying and it, it was, you know, there was like a priest there and it was a much more traditional sort of memorial ceremony. And then that this incident with them spraying the silly string and, you know, laughing and having this apparently joyous time was just completely taken out of context. But in light of this and the other inconsistencies that police were coming across as they investigated this situation, Darley was actually arrested for murder of her two children just 12 days later after the home invasion, the alleged home invasion. So she was arrested on June 18th, 1996. She maintained at every point that she had she had been attacked and her children had been murdered and that she was innocent, but the police were suggesting that she had actually killed the kids and her wounds, even the neck wound, were self-inflicted. There was a lot of publicity regarding revolving around this crime and a lot of people in the media were drawing comparisons to this Susan Smith case which had happened just about a year before and for this reason the um 
the decision was made to actually move the trial for Darley to Kerrville, Texas, which is 60 miles west of San Antonio. And it's a very small conservative community. Uh, Population is only about 20,000. And the prosecutors also decided to seek the death penalty against Darley Routier. The prosecutors said that what had happened was Routier, the Routiers had fallen on hard times financially. Darren's business was not going as well as it had in the past. And at the time that the murders took place, the couple only had about $2,500 in their checking account. Because of this financial situation, Darley killed the kids and that it wasn't just the the issue of the children being a financial burden on the family, but also the issue that Darley was very depressed and uh, possibly suffering from postpartum psychosis. They argued that this is evidenced by a journal entry that she had written just weeks before the murders where she discussed a suicide attempt that she had made. The evidence against her was pretty significant, but it was all circumstantial. Uh, The evidence included things such as a veteran crime scene investigator testifying emphatically that there was no intruder who had entered the house. He had seen countless break-ins and home invasions over the course of his career. And the scene at the Darley residence in Rowlett, Texas, just didn't look like any of those other scenes he had seen. Other evidence included a kitchen knife in the house having fibers from the screen door on it, um, meaning that the door had been cut with a knife that Darley used herself. However, just a disclaimer on that one, the expert who testified about this turned out to be a hardcore alcoholic who was found to have provided inaccurate testimony at other trials. So you might want to take that one with a grain of salt. However, the evidence didn't stop there. Another thing that was brought up was that there was a lack of damage to the interior of the house. And this is very damning for Darley because it would seem that there wasn't really much of a struggle, which is counter to what she told police and told the 911 operator on the night of the incident. Additional circumstantial evidence against Darley included her strange behavior, including saying to the 911 operator, he left the knife, but I picked it up. God, I bet if we could have gotten the prints, maybe, or something to that effect. I'll actually play a clip from the 911 call right now so you can hear what it sounded like. And just FYI, It's uh, pretty low-quality audio, so if you're listening through headphones, you might want to turn it down just a little bit. But I will play this brief clip from the 911 call. The call itself is only about uh, four to five minutes total. 
because the police arrived on scene very quickly, remember. But I'll play just this quick little 30-second, more or less, clip. Really, really difficult to hear, but Darley is saying that the murderer left the knife and the 911 operator is telling her not to touch anything and Darley responds that she's already touched it. I'll play it one more time so you can try to hear it again. And the call continues for about another minute and a half to two minutes. And the knife actually comes up again later in the call. So I'll play that clip as well. It's just a few seconds. And again, it's really difficult to hear. So just try to listen closely if you can. You can hear her just sort of uh, saying that she already touched the knife and, oh no, we could have gotten the prints maybe. So a lot of people thought it was strange that she would have brought up the fingerprints on the knife after having just been stabbed and seeing her children killed. It just seemed like a strange thing for her to point out. And also in the testimony during the trial from police officers who were present at the scene and other investigators as well, they said that during that initial 24 to 48 hour time period, Darley seemed to keep bringing up the knife when she spoke with them. And it just seemed unusual. The silly string tape that I was talking about earlier is thought to have been the real nail in the coffin for Darley. The tape is very strange and it just doesn't seem like something you would expect from a grieving family. However, I mean, the argument could be made that people grieve in different ways and no one really knows how they would react unless they had been put in that situation themselves. But for the jury, they thought that it was atrocious, in bad taste, and definitely not the actions of someone who is innocent. Darley did take the stands during her trial, but her performance as a witness was absolutely awful. And not to mention, the jury did not like her at all anyway. So she really just made things worse. She kept forgetting whether she had been asleep or awake when she was first stabbed. And the prosecutors also produced excerpts while she was on the stand from her prison letters where she wrote to friends on multiple occasions that she knew who did it, 
which is a problem because up until then she had claimed that she never clearly saw the intruder and never knew who it could have been. Finally, the jury deliberated for seven hours and reached a guilty verdict. And on February 4th, 1997, Jarley Routier was sentenced to death by lethal injection. There's a lot of controversy surrounding this death penalty decision. And probably the biggest points of concern are that the evidence against her was circumstantial. You know, they didn't have a confession. They didn't have a witness. They didn't have hard material evidence against Darley. There is also concern that the trial was lacking in certain information that could have protected Darley and, you know, exonerated her. And this includes some photos of her forearms that were taken at the police station just a couple of days after she, um, she was arrested for the crimes where her arms are really, really badly bruised. But I was looking at these photos and I was reading some stuff online that other people had written about the Darley Routier case. And it seemed to me that the uh, bruises were self-inflicted. They're also really, really large bruises. They look like she had maybe slammed her arms against a countertop or something like that. They don't look like defensive wounds from a uh, from a altercation with a with another person. But nevertheless, a lot of the Charlie Routier supporters uh, bring this up and say that this evidence should have been introduced in court. As far as the appeals process goes, the situation for Darley has been complicated. A big part of this is the official transcript of the original trial that she underwent is completely messed up. Uh, The court reporter who was taking the transcript made a ton of errors. Over 50 pages were missing from the uh, official court record. The court reporter had also incorrectly entered all sorts of key details and words. So, for example, if someone said would, the court reporter wrote would not Instead of can't, she put can, things like that. So very, very major errors. It is estimated that there were over 30,000 errors that were made on that court transcript and that 40 to 50% of the mistakes were considered substantial. Darley Routier is currently in Mountain View Unit, which is a state prison in Gatesville, Texas, located on Ransom Road, which I included because I thought that was a very ironic name for a road for a prison to be located on. She's currently awaiting execution by lethal injection, but 
there's no set date for when this execution is going to take place. She is currently single because her husband or ex-husband divorced her in June 2011, but he said that he still believes that Darlie is innocent and that the divorce was not related to him doubting her innocence, but rather just that it was too difficult to be in a relationship with someone who's imprisoned. So, you know, fair enough. But there is a website where you can find more information about Darlie Routier and you can see what her supporters have to say. It's called www.fordarlieroutier.org. I'll put a link for that in the episode description so you can take a look if you want to. But there's, um, there's a lot of people who say that she's innocent and then there's a lot of people who say that she should indeed be on death row. I think that personally just the impressions that I have of her watching interviews with her and stuff she she seems guilty to me. She seems like she, there's something not right with her the way that she speaks and communicates uh in terms of facial expression and stuff are are just off to me and they remind me of classic cases of people with psychopathy or who um, have personality disorders. I'll put in a couple of clips here so you can hear Darlie in one of her, her first interviews that she gave after being sentenced to death. And you can kind of hear, I hope, what I'm talking about in terms of just her vocal inflection and her cadence to the way she speaks it's just strange is the only real concise way to describe it i think is it's just strange so i'll put that in right here and you can uh hear for yourself darlie routier and her version of what occurred on that night devin west Always trying to make everybody laugh. He was always doing funny things, making silly faces. Damon was still at the age where he would let me hold him still. Oh, God. I missed him so much. I swear I did not murder my children. I swear. So what did happen that night? Darlie and I discussed it earlier. What woke you up? My little boy, Damon. He was pressing on my shoulder, and he was saying, Mommy. I sat straight up when he said that, and I saw the guy starting to walk away from me. Her neck wound is still visible, yet she has no memory of the attack. At trial, even Darley conceded it would be hard to sleep through it. I know I didn't sleep through that. I mean, how would anybody sleep through something like that? But yet you say you don't remember. But I don't remember. Can you imagine waking up out of your sleep with a man attacking you? Well, what do you think happened then if you can't remember but you don't think you slept through it? I think that I 
tried to fight with a man, and I think that he either knocked me unconscious, or I think that when, you know, he slit my throat or whatever, I think I um, passed out. So you can hear even in that brief clip the way she kind of contradicts herself. So initially she says that she heard um, one of her sons saying, Mommy, Mommy, and that she sat up and saw the guy leaving the room. And then later she says that uh, she believes that she woke up and fought with the intruder, but that she blacked it out of her memory. So there's a, a lot of issues here, and I'll play just a little bit more audio from that same interview. And in this section, you can hear her respond to some claims that were made by police who were first responders on the scene, who claimed that she made no effort to stop the bleeding of the children and didn't try to help them in any way. There's no other words to use. That's a lie. She says she comforted Damon. I told him to hold on. I told him to be strong. And he said, okay, mommy. He shook his head. That was the last words I ever heard him say. So there you have a very dramatic description of the last moments of Damon's life. It's interesting that no one else noted that she was cradling her child or speaking to the children, let alone witnessing one of the children actually speaking back in an intelligible way. So I, I'll be the first to say I don't believe that uh, what Darley is saying in these interviews is true. Uh, these clips were both taken from the same interview. It was an ABC Dateline 2020 segment hosted by Sylvia Chase. I do not know the exact air date, but it would have been sometime in the uh, late 1990s. I think it was either 1999 or possibly the year 2000. I apologize that I couldn't get the exact date, but um, it was part of a series of interviews that Sylvia Chase did with Darlie Routier, and you can find a lot of them online if you're interested in learning more. Finally, as we're wrapping things up for this segment, I did want to point out that a lot of people, particularly on the subreddit r slash unresolved mysteries, have pointed out that it seems like it would be possible that the husband, Darren, may have been involved in these murders as well. So um, the key evidence for this would be that he was involved in insurance scams in the past and actually once conspired to stage a home robbery in order to collect on an insurance claim. He also um, said that, uh, well, actually, CNN said this, that he failed a polygraph when he was questioned about his involvement with his son's deaths. So for polygraph testing, there's a lot of different reasons why you 
can fail those. It may not necessarily be that he was lying, but it is certainly compelling when put within the context of the other elements of this story. I'll say that Darren is a weird guy. He seemed way, way too calm to me when he was describing finding his kids' bodies during an interview. So at the beginning of this segment where I told you about that really terrifying and and just horrible description of him attempting CPR and having to watch the blood gush up out of his son's chest, he describes that like someone who's talking about what they had for lunch you know it's not it's not like he's super emotional and i would in fact say that as far as the people who were at the scene that night the most emotional people are not darren and darley but rather the police officers who were there and were like this was one of the worst things we've ever witnessed Uh, And also pointing out that when they asked Darley to help put pressure on one of the kid's wounds, she she wouldn't do it. So I think that there's definitely a good reason to think that uh, Darley did indeed commit these heinous crimes. And all of the prosecutors and officers and even members of the Rowlett community that agreed to be interviewed and speak about this um, after the trial and everything, they're just straight up like, she did this. She's terrible. There's no doubt in my mind. It's open and shut. This is, you know, this did unfortunately occur and she she received this sentence that she deserved. said that you wanted a quintessentially brutal episode of Down Home Fear, so I hope this uh, at least partially satiates your need for that. If you're looking for other intense DHF episodes, um, I would personally recommend the ones we did for Oba Chandler, Derek Todd Lee, and Eileen Warnos. Those are all pretty gnarly ones. Um, A couple of those are actually straight up fucking scary, too, particularly the Derek Todd Lee episode. I found that extremely disturbing when I was um, uh, researching that. I think it's a a really just horrifying story. All of them are horrifying, but particularly the Derek Todd Lee episode really got to me. Anyhow, thank you for joining me (laughs) for this episode. I, uh, I've really been enjoying working on the third season of this show. I, I like the tone. I like the pacing. I like that we have a large diversity of topics for us to all consider and contemplate. And there is a lot of good in this world, but there's also a lot of terribleness in this world. And we need to remember that we're all responsible for preventing those terrible things.
I generally like to keep the show somewhat light, but be assured that I don't release these types of darker episodes without a lot of careful forethought. The reason why season 2 ended as abruptly as it did was because I sat down one day to research a school shooting, and when the opening scene of the documentary that I had planned on watching was a shot of a parking lot full of dead grade schoolers, I was just like, alright, this is like, I need a fucking break from this. So if you would like to chime in with maybe a story of your own or an idea or just any thoughts that you may have about anything that has been covered on Down Home Fear, you can always join our Facebook group. It's simply titled Down Home Fear Podcast. You can also reach out to me by email at hunterhkeegan at gmail.com or on Twitter at hhkeegan. The at Down Home Fear Twitter account is up and it's still kind of active, but honestly, I don't do the best job of um, uh, posting on the DHF Twitter. So if you're trying to reach out to me, do it through the Facebook group or do it through my own Twitter handle at HHKeegan. Um, anyhow, yeah, uh, live righteously. Don't kill each other. Don't poison people. Don't stab people. Live your life well, and be sure to come back for episode 30. Thank you so much. Bye.